If you would uh, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15. For the last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of, in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're looking, of course, at Palm Sunday and, and Resurrection Sunday, the last couple of weeks. But now we're returning to our study of 1 Corinthians. But where we pick up in 1 Corinthians is back with the topic of the resurrection, which we celebrated last Sunday on Easter. And 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a good summary of the gospel, and it gives us a great reminder of why the resurrection is so important. You know, last Sunday night, for those of you who, who joined us uh, Easter, of course, I understood that many would be traveling and spending time with family on Easter Sunday, but we, we did have a few that came and joined us for a Christian film uh, based on a true story of the life of Lee Strobel, who had been an atheist and a journalist, and he wanted to convince his wife, who had become a Christian, not to continue being a Christian. He, wanted, he felt like he had lost his wife when she got saved. They had both been atheists before. Now she was a Christian and he was not. And so he decided to look into it, to look into the gospel and to try to prove to his wife that what she was believing was a fable, was untrue. Um, and uh, during the course of that search, he himself came to recognize the truth, to accept it, to believe it, and became a Christian himself. And went on to, um, he wanted to write a, a newspaper article or a magazine article uh, telling about his conversion as an atheist and his editor wouldn't go, on, go along with it, felt like that would ruin their credibility. So he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And we watched that film, The Case of Christ, last Sunday evening. And, that, and part of the, that film, very important to it, was the evidence for the resurrection. And uh, if you were to go to thetruelife.com, one of the videos there, I, I'm not sure that I'll play it today uh, for sake of time, but on truelife.org, one of the videos deals with some of those evidences that people can look at. The, and some of those evidences are mentioned right here this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And why the resurrection has to be true for Christianity to be true, for our hope in Jesus Christ and, a hope and, a, and uh, our trust in Him and that home in heaven, for all of that to be real, the resurrection has to be true. And Paul d describes this to the Corinthians who were Greeks, and Greeks generally did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that you went to the afterlife, you went to the underworld, and you did not come back. There was no resurrection of the dead. But uh, of course, the Christians believed it, and they needed special encouragement from Paul regarding that faith and that belief and that truth and how we know it is true. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we find three actions in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. If you look with me at that verse, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So Paul is writing this part of his epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 15, declaring 
the gospel which ye first of all preached is one action preached unto you and which ye have received another action which ye have received and third wherein ye stand those three actions i want to use those three actions to divide up this passage and study it we will not i've decided ahead of time we will not take the whole passage the whole chapter this morning but we'll look at those three actions this sunday and next sunday uh, lord willing and uh, this sunday we'll fo focus on the first one and a half of those actions we'll look at the preaching of the gospel and then we'll examine the receiving of the gospel and we'll continue with that theme of receiving the gospel and then look at a standing in the gospel next week as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians 15. But the first action, again, is the preaching of the gospel, and that's mentioned there in verse 1. The purpose of the preaching the gospel, the receiving the gospel, and standing in the gospel is given for us in the following verses, especially verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So the preaching of the gospel, the receiving of the gospel, the standing in the gospel has this purpose for us, not just for those Corinthian believers, of course, for them, but also for us today, that purpose that we would, first of all, be saved. And I hope that everyone in this room has heard the preaching of the gospel and received it and so that you are saved and that you are standing in the gospel in other words uh, look at verse 2 again what i preach to you unless you have believed in vain unless you have believed in vain what that means i'll go ahead and interpret in paul's own words if you look toward a little further into the passage we'll come back to that again but if you look at verses 33 and 34, what does he mean by unless you have believed in vain? Verse 33 and 34, I believe, gives us a good idea of what Paul meant by unless you have believed in vain. Verse 33 and 34 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not this knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We'll come back to that in depth, but that gives you an idea of where Paul is going with that, unless you have believed in vain. In our evening services at 6 p.m., we, we meet in a Sunday school classroom at the back, same, same place, same format that you'll find our meeting set up following the service this morning. And we study the book of Revelation. We're current, I invite you to join us for that. We're currently uh, in... Revelation 3, finishing up Revelation 3 this evening. But after to this evening, we only have five lessons left. Lord willing, five lessons left in the book of Revelation. So we're going to cover the rest of the book of Revelation, five lessons following tonight's lesson in Revelation 3. But one of the things we learned a couple of weeks ago, last we met for that study, was an idea of what this, unless you have believed in vain, meant. The church of Sardis was one of the seven churches that John addressed the book of Revelation to specifically, and that Jesus had a special message for. And it's believed by many that uh, you can take Revelation 2 and 3, you can lay it alongside of church history, and you can see similarities between different periods in history where 
each, each period at certain times in history kind of match up some of the descriptions there. But certainly throughout all of church history, all the church age since, Christ, since the day of Pentecost until now, there have been churches. You know, at the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, those were the seven particular churches in Asia that had certain things they were doing right, certain things that some of them weren't doing right, and that those things were addressed. And there's always churches in any time in history that exemplify some of those traits, some of those warnings that are needed, some of those commendations and encouragements that are given to those churches. And the last church we looked at was the Church of Sardis. And in church history, the period that it matched up with is usually that Reformation church of that time of Martin Luther and where he uh, brought people back to the Bible and he had the Protestant Reformation begin. But what happened in the Protestant Reformation, what slowed it down for a couple of hundred years was that the government got involved with the church to the extent that the government authorities decided which church would be established in their province of Germany or Switzerland or Denmark and Sweden and England and Scotland. And the government decided, you live in this country, you live in this province, this is your church, you have to go to that church, you go to any other church, you can be put in jail, you can have your property confiscated, uh, all kinds of uh, fines and other punishments if they weren't going to the right church that the government said they had to go to. That's the main reason, that is the reason that the pilgrims came to America in 1620. And then later groups, the Puritans, would come in 1630. And that groups, even the, the Catholics who came to Maryland, came for religious freedom because they didn't have it over in Europe. Because in that 200-year period following the Great Reformation, even though there was a return to some of the doctrines of the Bible, and not to just what does a church council or a group of cardinals or the Pope say about the Bible, but what does the Bible say itself? And yet the government tried to decide for the people, this is what's right, you believe this. And there wasn't a freedom of conscience and freedom of the heart to decide and to believe. And there was a profession in the churches because of that lack of freedom. There was a profession of the doctrines, most of, most, much of which was, was correct and biblically correct. But people would have to go to those churches because the government said so. Because the government said, you have to believe this. You have to identify with this doctrine or that doctrine. And you have to believe this way and worship this way. And that led to a cold, formal Christianity because it was mandated that it be that way and follow that prescribed way. And Paul's saying, we are not to believe in vain. When you make a profession, when you say, this is what I believe, does our actions, does our life match that? Or have we believed in vain? And not a lordship salvation that you have to do certain works to earn your, earn your salvation, but can people tell by how you live, by the things you say and do, and your message of your life and of your actions to win others to Christ, that you truly believe what you say you believe. That it's not just a profession, it's not just a belief in vain. Because if you say one thing and don't really believe it, you, uh, the devil will call your bluff every time. Uh, he will call it and uh, prove and test you through, through tribulation, through sorrows, through whether it be physical issues, whether it be health or um, economic issues or faith issues. The devil wants to try us, test us, and get us away from the church, get us away from our faith and the practice of that faith. 
And Paul says, unless you have believed in vain. Uh, so the preaching, preaching of the gospel. What is the gospel? First of all, Paul makes it very clear. What is the gospel? These are the three things that cannot be left out. Any gospel tract, any presentation of the gospel should include these three things. Look what we have in verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. In other words, according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament pointed to the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. And that was fulfilled by Jesus. Just fulfilled everything foretold in the Old Testament, whether it's Genesis, whether it's Psalms, whether it's the prophets, major or minor. He fulfilled the scriptures. He died and he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 is, it was, was one that we read on Good Friday and referenced last week where Isaiah specifically foretold the suffering of the Messiah. And yet the Jews wanted to ignore that, didn't want to believe in a suffering Messiah that would die, that would be buried, and that would rise again the third day. Even though Jesus told his own disciples, we saw last week, they forgot, they had to be reminded by the angels, by the women who came to the empty tomb, and by Jesus appearing himself. And by the way, last week we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. You know, this week, that um, 1985 or 1988 years ago, Jesus would still be on this earth, walking with his disciples, teaching them. For 40 days he was with them, and over 500 witnesses saw him. And it's very important that all three of those things be included in the gospel. For I delivered, verse 3, unto you first of all that which I also received. And there you see, delivered is the preaching. He is now preaching. He is delivering the message that he received. He had to, he had to first hear that gospel. It was preached to him. It was given to him. It was proclaimed to him. And then Paul received it. The two actions we're looking at today, the preaching and the receiving. How Christ died for our sins the first ingredient of the gospel, he di Christ died for our sins. And number two, uh, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that's the second part, and that he was buried. And third, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then there's proof of that. And this was mentioned even in the film last week, um, that there was over... 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus during the 40 days that he walked this earth following his resurrection from the dead. Look at verse um, 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and of the 12, the 12 disciples. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So some, uh, probably by this time, James had been martyred and some others had, been, uh, had, had grow, grown old or been martyred for their faith and died. And they are now in heaven at this point. But a number at the time that Paul writes this passage, a number of the eyewitnesses are still alive proclaiming what they have seen and heard with their own eyes and ears that Jesus is risen. After that, he was seen of James. Uh, the brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts, the book of Acts. And, of course, he writes the book of James, the epistle of James. Verse 8, last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born of a due time. So it's important, first of all, to recognize what the gospel is. We should also recognize that there's a proof of the gospel. And then also, as very important to the preaching of the gospel, is grace. Very important 
Paul recognizes the importance of grace in preaching the gospel. We need to know what the gospel is, see that it's proven, it's true, it's reliable, and grace is very important to the gospel. Paul received the preaching of the gospel and believed by grace and is saved by grace, and by grace he is chosen to be an apostle, not deserving to, to be that one who's sent out, to be that uh, serve in that position as an apostle. Look at verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called. In other words, I'm not, I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. And grace is very important to the way we present the gospel, the way we present ourselves to the world and to one another, that we have that grace that God gave to us. We didn't deserve to be saved. We didn't deserve to have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to believe it. But God gave us that grace and to be the grace to be used of God, the grace to be a member of the family of God and to, to serve him. And Paul recognizes that grace. And of course, that grace is very important to the preaching of God's word. And then also very important to the preaching of God's word is the resurrection itself. And this passage, the resurrection, plays again a key, very key part. Uh, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that Christ is not risen? Remember, we're looking at the preaching and also the receiving. And there are some that were not receiving that preaching of the gospel. They were leaving one part out. They were willing to perhaps believe that Christ died for their sins, but not willing, and that he was buried, but not willing to believe in the resurrection. And Paul points out that's the most important part. You have to believe the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the gospel doesn't stand. Verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and yet ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope of Christ, we are the, of all men most miserable, especially at that time that Paul is living in, because at that time the church was being persecuted. People were in peril of their lives and of their property, of their livelihood, their family. They were in danger of losing everything for being a Christian because the, the Roman government and the Jews were persecuting them and the local authorities as well among the Greeks were persecuting this new faith and they were mocked and they're in danger of their lives and they're willing to suffer that. They're willing to suffer that because they believed in the power of the resurrection. They believed in the power of the gospel. They believed it was real. They had that hope of heaven and now anything that is suffered in this life is nothing to be compared to the joy 
in heaven that awaits us one day. And so Jesus paid such a high price for our salvation to provide us that place in heaven. Um, whatever suffering that we go through in this life is little in comparison to what Christ paid for us. And so it's worth it. It's worth uh, showing that gratitude, showing our sincerity and winning our friends and family to Christ and living out our faith that we have not believed in vain, that we practice what we preach, that we live out the gospel every day. But Paul says, otherwise, you know, as other places in the scripture or even in common society would say, if, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if you just die and you never return, there's no hope of heaven, then why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Why suffer as a believer? Why live the Christian life? Christians are the most miserable people, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, if heaven is not real, if the gospel is not true. But it is. That preaching is true. And let's look at, continue to look at that second important action that we'll continue with next week of receiving the gospel. Look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. It's assured. It is a reality. Christ's resurrection is true. It did happen. And he is the proof. Because Christ rose, he's the first fruits. The first fruits is a reference that Jews would understand well. On the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath day, the farmers would bring their first fruits of their crops. The first tenth of their crop would be brought to provide for the Levites for the, and the support of the house of God. And that was a dedication. That was a recognizing that everything, the whole crop, the entire harvest belonged to God. And they were just giving back the first part of that to the Lord. And so Jesus is the proof. That all of us, that our lives, that eternity belongs to him. That he has the power over life and death. And just as Christ rose from the dead, so will we all rise from the dead. He is, his resurrection is the proof of that. Without that, there's not that proof. There's not that first fruits. There's not that proof that Jesus, that God has that power over life and death and to give us that place in heaven because of Christ's death and resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been another martyr, another human uh, good teacher that died, and that's it. And that's what, of course, many people would try to tell you. The difference really between someone who acknowledges that Christ existed rather than a Christian who believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, is the resurrection. It is the difference. And so there's that receiving of that message of the gospel. The receiving of the gospel. Look uh, at verse 20 again. Those that slept. Those who slept are those who have, as Paul mentioned, the eyewitnesses that have now died, the Christians who have already died, as well as the Old Testament believers. Because the believers in the Old Testament were saved in the same, essentially the same way that the New Testament believers are saved. They're saved by looking forward to the coming of the promised one, and all the, all the sacrifices and everything in the Old Testament were a picture of that. And they were believing one day the Messiah will come, the promised one will come. And all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament believers are saved by faith. And Romans makes that clear. Abraham was saved not by works, but by faith. And they believed what God told them. They believed his promises. 
And today we are saved by faith looking back to the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. And we live by faith and of course we look forward to his return that is also promised that like as he ascended into the clouds, he will return in the clouds one day for us. And the resurrection is vital to that and receiving that message of the gospel is vital to that faith uh, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they received it and it's very important that each of us have received it and then live according to that reception of the gospel, of the preaching of Christ's death for our sins, his burial and his resurrection. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall he be made alive. Adam sinned. He disobeyed because Adam sins, everyone dies, everyone sins. Christ never sinned. He was born of a virgin. He did not inherit Adam's sin nature through, uh, through his father, physical father, Joseph, because Joseph was not Christ's physical father. God is his father. And he did not inherit a sin nature, did not have a sin nature, and never sinned by choice or by nature, where all of us naturally do and also sin by choice. And or without excuse, we can't just say, well, it's Adam's fault, I'm guiltless. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's commandments. And Jesus never did. And because he's eternal, he pre-existed his physical birth. As, and so his death counts for all. And just as Adam's sin counted for everyone, all his descendants, now everyone before and after Christ who looked forward to the, or back to the promised one, and what he did to atone, to redeem, to pay for our sin, is saved, made alive. This is not a universal salvation, but rather everyone has to choose for themselves. Look at verse 23. Everyone has to choose to receive the gospel for themselves. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ. So not everyone is saved, but they that are Christ. And at his coming, of course, he, when those who are alive and remain to his coming, We'll be raptured. We'll be caught up together with Christ in the clouds. We'll look more at that next week in the end of chapter 15. But he must reign. And we've been looking, studying some of those events again in our Revelation Bible studies. And I encourage you to be there next week, especially we'll be looking at the rapture in chapter 4 of Revelation and 5. And we'll be continuing to look at the future coming. There are two resurrections of the dead. One is a resurrection of the dead unto eternal life. We're at the rapture, all of those who sleep in Christ, and they're not so asleep, they're absent from the body, present with the Christ, but their physical bodies are going to be resurrected as well. They're going to be given a new body, and we will all be together with the Lord in heaven, and we'll return with him at his kingdom where he will reign on earth for a thousand years. Everything will be under his feet. Everything will be put under Christ's authority when he rules on earth, there's one final battle where Satan is defeated and Satan and his angels um, are all cast into the lake of fire as well as everyone who did not believe in the Messiah, in the Savior, in Jesus Christ. When the books are open, the great white throne of judgment, as spoken of in Revelation 20, um, there will be that resurrection of the dead, the second uh, resurrection, completely separate from the first resurrection, where those who are raised from the dead will all be cast into the lake of fire because their names are not found in the Lamb's book of life. Look at verse 25. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. The only thing that is not put under Jesus' feet is God the Father himself. 
Verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, unto Jesus Christ, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that's God the Father, that put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Else what should they do that are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Notice Paul uses the, the pronoun, the third person plural pronoun, they. Perhaps this is a pagan practice that some people were baptized for the death. Paul's not endorsing it, but he's saying, look, people recognize there's a resurrection of the dead. They recognize that there's going to be a resurrection one day. Otherwise, why would they go through those practices of being baptized from the dead? But also, baptism in Jesus Christ is also a picture of the resurrection. When a person is placed under the water in baptism, it represents Christ's burial and death and burial being placed in the water, and we're identifying with that. We're saying we believe in the gospel. And when we rise up, it re re represents Christ's resurrection and the fact that we are now a new creature in Christ, that we are now dead to the sin and the death that Jesus conquered on our behalf on the cross and with his death, burial, and resurrection through the gospel. And we identify that with, in baptism. It's not part of our salvation. It's not a needed work to obtain salvation, but rather it's an identification. It is a public testimony that we are Christians, that we are believers, that we are identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then look at verse 30. Notice now in verse 29, he used the pronoun they. Now he turns to we. And why do we in jeopardy, stand in jeopardy every hour? Why would people die for something they knew that was not true? Certainly people are deceived sometimes into believing a lie and they're willing to die for a false religion. But that's not the case with Christians. We know what, uh, the, the disciples would not have given their lives. The 500 witnesses and the other believers in the first century would not have willingly laid down their lives if they knew that what they believed was not true, that there was no resurrection, that there is no heaven, and they would have willingly done anything to save their life and worshipped and offered the incense to, this, to Caesar and denied that they were Christians. But many were not willing to do that. And that's why the, the, the Christian church grew so quickly in the first century is because people recognized these people are willing to die. They're sincere. They're for real. They're living out their faith. They're willing to die. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to be persecuted. Uh, Paul himself suffered much. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was imprisoned and eventually executed by the Romans. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, you know, Christians were fed to lions and to wild beasts like, like gladiators uh, for entertainment because they were Christians. They were persecuted. What advantage is it to me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And there Paul expresses what I mentioned earlier. If it's not true, why don't we just live? So here's the question now in verse 33 and 34. Do our lives show that we believe what Paul believed or do we show that we believe what the world believes by just eating and drinking like tomorrow, wait, tomorrow, eat and drink, enjoy your life, tomorrow we might die? Or do we truly live out our faith and does the way we conduct ourselves, the way that we separate ourselves from false teachings, false doctrines, and, and wrong practices, sin, uh, any kind of sin, whether it's gossip, whether it's lies, whether it's um, covetousness, greed, pride, uh, whether it's uh, um, 
you know, fighting amongst ourselves or bickering, anything. Do we truly suffer, uh, separate ourselves from sin, from all sin? Because verse 33 tells us, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And Paul says, be careful, you know, what, what their associations with. If people are saying they don't believe in the resurrection, separate from that. Don't be a part of that and live out your faith. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to proclaim the truth. Verse 34, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Do we truly live like we know God and we know God's truth? Do we live in that power? And so, again, we'll continue this next week, uh, but this morning we looked at the preaching of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel. Next week we'll continue to look at the receiving of the gospel and the standing in the gospel of Christ. Does our lives show that we have a confidence, that we've heard the preaching of the gospel and we have received it? It's one thing to hear the word of God preached. It's another thing to receive it. Have we received it into our hearts, into our lives? And do we ourselves preach that gospel? Do we proclaim it? You know, do we invite people to church? Do we give out these cards that have the website or one of the tracks in the back that have the gospel and make an attempt, every opportunity we have, to share the gospel to a lost and dying world where thousands die and go to hell every day? What are we doing about it? And do our lives meet up with what we say? Because as I, I mentioned earlier, if, if it's a bluff, Satan will call it. He'll prove it otherwise, that it's not sincere, it's not real. Let's be real. And let's make sure that our lives always match our words and what we say we believe. Including, you know, even when we go to the meeting to follow the service this morning. Let's uh, bow for, for prayer. We'll have... Um, We'll have one last hymn, and uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father.